0: From the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. It's not like a temporary worker visa or a foreign student visa. It's a different concept as a tool to be able to respond to humanitarian crises. Most of them have lived in the United States for
1: half or more of their lives. For most abuse holders, this is their, their
2: country. My role is to stand up for my family and to speak out on behalf of over 250,000 U.S. citizen children who are in this situation. My brother and I have been separated from our families. I decided to be part of this lawsuit, not just to fight for my family, but also over 300,000 families.
3: Hola and welcome to La Biblioteca, an exploration of the Library of Congress's collections that focus on the cultures of Spain, Portugal, Latin America, and the Hispanic community in the United States. I'm Maria Guadalupe Partira, a Huntington Fellow in the Hispanic Reading Room.
4: I'm Herman Luis Chavez, also a Huntington Fellow in the Hispanic Reading Room. Hola Lupita!
3: Hola, herman.
4: Season 2 of La Biblioteca focuses on a Latinx resource guide, Civil Rights Cases and Events in the United States, a research guide which has been curated here at the Library of Congress. This is our third episode, which explores Central American migration and the United States' temporary protection status.
3: located in the Mission District in San Francisco, California is home to a collection of murals completed in the mid-80s. These murals are a form of artistic expression, exhibiting distraught over human rights and political abuses in Central America. In one mural, you can witness the face of a mother fleeing her village with a son, leaving behind her motherland in the pursuit of an obscure destination that promises hope. On the other side of the same mural, you can see the face of Salvadorian Archbishop Oscar Romero, who was assassinated for being a civil rights activist and a vocal critic against government-sponsored repression.
4: 40 years have passed since the assassination of Archbishop Oscar Romero, yet El Salvador remains in the throes of gang-related violence, high homicide rates, human rights abuses, and government corruption. According to a 2020 Congressional Research Service report, rates of extortion have risen across the country, and of the violence that occurs in the country, many cite gendered violence and gang violence as reasons for migrating to the U.S. from El Salvador. Today, hundreds of thousands of Central Americans, mainly from El Salvador, are living in the U.S. under a temporary protection status, most well known as TPS.
3: In 1990, the George H. W. Bush administration enacted the Temporary Protection Status, which was granted to foreign nationals from designated countries experiencing environmental disasters, armed hostilities, or abnormal emergencies. TPS recipients receive temporary immigration status, work authorization, and protection from deportation until it's safe to return to their home countries.
4: TPS does not grant a direct path to permanent residency status or citizenship, but it is renewable with designated time periods ranging from 6 to 18 months. Since 1990, administrations from both sides of the aisle have renewed TPS designation to El Salvador.
3: In 2018, the Department of Homeland Security issued the termination of TPS for El Salvador, provoking class-action lawsuits against the government. With TPS holders contributing millions of dollars to the national U.S. programs,
4: with the current unrest affecting El Salvador,
3: and with the presence of more than 300,000 U.S. citizens with TPS holding parents,
4: the future is uncertain. Today, we are joined by three individuals who are highly familiar with the U.S. temporary protection status.
3: Ruth Ellen Waysom is a professor of policy practice at the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas, where she teaches courses on immigration policy and legislative development. For more than 25 years, Waysom was an immigration policy specialist at the U.S. Library of Congress's Congressional Research Service. She has testified before Congress about asylum policy, legal immigration trends, human rights, and the push and pull factors on unauthorized migration. Waysom earned master's and doctoral degrees in history at the University of Michigan, largely funded by the Institute of Social Research. Hello, Dr. Waysom, and welcome to the Biblioteca podcast. Good morning. It's great to talk to you. It's great chatting with you too, Dr. Waysom. Thank you so much for joining us today. There has been a recent surge of Central American migration into the United States, which has been depicted on diverse news and broadcasting mediums. To comprehend why these individuals are seeking a safe heaven, it is essential to consider and also comprehend the history and the current hardships of these countries. We wish to pivot our attention to temporary protection status, or also known as TPS, legislation that the first President Bush signed. There are millions of TPS recipients, all coming from the 10 countries with TPS designation. Central Americans make up the majority of these individuals with TPS. Could you tell us more about TPS, Dr. Waisem? How and why did this legislation emerge?
0: There had been, after the passage of the Refugee Act in 1980, which spelled out when someone is a refugee or qualifies for asylum, they have to meet a definition of having a well-founded fear based of being returned to their home country based on one of five characteristics their religion, their race, their ethnicity, their political views, or their membership in a social group. And that was part of the international definition of a refugee that grew out, out after World War II. But there's was this other concept that was not in statute. And that's the idea of safe haven. And it embraces people who don't necessarily meet the definition of a refugee, but they certainly are fleeing dangerous situations and would be warranting protections. And it's also kind of caught up in a concept that was commonly used back in the 80s of a concept of first asylum. And there was also the d deconcini bill, named after Congressman Joe Moakley and Senator Dennis DeConcini, that would grant a stage of, of deportation to Salvadorans and Nicaraguans at the time. And that had a lot of political steam. So there was a lot going on trying to address this issue of Central Americans that were not receiving asylum. And and again, there was also a a major court case going on at the time. The American Baptist Church uh, and other groups were doing a court case against the administration for how they were treating the Salvadorans and Guatemalans in the asylum system. In the meantime, while all of this was going on, Congress was doing a major overhaul of legal immigration. Which increased legal immigration and increased employment-based, expanded family-based. It did a variety of things. These were the immigration amendments of 1990. And one of the final bits of the negotiation, and I was staffing that, so I was present when the House and Senate conferees were negotiating this. They put in to the final bill temporary protected status. These provisions that created TPS, which is now Section 244 of the Immigration Act, and that spells out when people are eligible for TPS. And they also reached an agreement, and again, this was negotiated and back and forth. So a consensus had to develop that the Salvadorans, only the Salvadorans, were able to to get temporary protected status in that bill. That's the nutshell of how we got here.
3: Thank you, Dr. Waysom. The events and legislation that you just mentioned are critical to understanding how TPS became enacted. Central Americans, especially those from El Salvador, make up the majority of TPS recipients. TPS designations for Nicaragua, Honduras, and El Salvador have been renewed since February 13, 2001, and December 30, 1998 which are the required arrival dates to the U.S. for Nicaragua, Honduras, and El Salvador. TPS designation for these countries were announced to have expired back in 2017. As litigation for these decisions remain ongoing, what are some opposing arguments that TPS has faced, Dr. Waysom? And what are some favorable arguments for tps
0: it inspires other people to come to the united states so that's the main argument against it the argument in in favor of it is of course that there are a lot of people that fall in that area between the very difficult and high threshold of meeting the definition of a refugee and there are millions of people around the world who have already met that definition not as many at that time but Certainly a fair number, but it's, it's not safe for them to return home. And one of the things that was recognized in TPS, in addition to civil strife and unrest, uh, are natural disasters. And the thought behind TPS is that people are only here temporarily. And as soon as things get better at home, they will go home as soon as it's safe. And we certainly have had instances where that has been the case. And many of the Central Americans, of the almost 250,000 Central Americans who are protected by uh, TPS today are, are different than the ones who got it in 1990. It's a different population. There are instances where it becomes clear that people have either, that have been here long enough, it doesn't make sense to keep them in this indefinite immigration limbo. But that requires an act of Congress. Uh, under the constitution and the way the courts have viewed it, it's the legislative branch that's preeminent in immigration, not the executive branch, it's the legislative branch. And as a result, Congress needs to act on these things. And there have been numerous times over the years when Congress will pass legislation that adjusts people that are here on some kind of temporary or sometimes even not in any official immigration status that will authorize that they can become lawful permanent residents. It is one of the thorniest aspects of TPS is that while it grants someone the authorization to work in the United States, and it does consider them to be in a status where if you're otherwise eligible for another immigrant visa, like you marry a U.S. citizen or an employer petitions to hire you in a job that you can adjust status, you're not barred as being considered an unauthorized resident. It doesn't give you a pathway to becoming a lawful permanent resident unless Congress enacts legislation. So it's an imperfect response that addresses temporary situations.
3: Recently, TPS designation was granted to Venezuela. Can you tell us more about the process that Venezuelans who are eligible for TPS are undergoing and what TPS for Venezuela might mean for temporary protection status as
0: a whole? I'm glad you brought up Venezuela because many Venezuelans are in the asylum process and are applying for asylum in the United States. And many of them came here on non immigrant visas. While you're waiting to get into the asylum system, TPS enables you to work, and it's also quite possible that there are Venezuelans here who will not meet that high standard of a definition of an asylum seeker, and yet right now, as you know, many countries in this hemisphere around Venezuela have recognized, it may not be safe for people with a- opposing political views to return to Venezuela, so temporary protected status enables Venezuelans to have a, at least a period of, of time here where they can wait and see what happens back home, where they can work, where they can continue to try to live as normal a life as they can. I have looked at uh, the Chileans after Pinochet, and, and, and they were another population that had great difficulty getting asylum because of U.S. policies uh, in Chile. And it was a long time before uh, they went back, but a lot of Chileans did return home. We'd like to think that everyone got to be where, you know, where they want to be and doesn't feel uprooted, but sometimes you can't go back. And that's what asylum and refugee status is about, but we know there are individuals that don't meet that threshold. And um, the real issue becomes what's a tenable period of time to be in immigration limbo. That's up to Congress to decide if they've been living and working in the United States and contributing to our communities and our economy and their children are growing up here and we don't want them to go back. They're part of us now. And just because Congress passes a law that says you you can have lawful permanent status, it doesn't mean you have to stay here. There's no coercion involved. It's just recognizing um, after a, a certain period of time that people are already incorporated into the fiber of of our nation.
4: Thank you so much, professor. Our conversation so far about TPS has really shown us that this conversation around immigration limbo is one that is transforming. We're even seeing this with the fact that TPS designations come and go. This whole recent aspect with Venezuela coming in with that designation acknowledges the effects TPS has with different countries and those who come to the United States. Right now, we're at a critical juncture where Nielsen v. Ramos is being appealed, and it's still something that's under consideration. Considering these examples of Venezuela and Nielsen v. Ramos, what do you believe is the future for TPS or the possible directions of TPS or similar immigration
0: legislation? One of the things that's important to note as part of this discussion is under current law, to benefit from TPS, you have to be here before it's put into effect. So it doesn't create an avenue for someone to come to the United States. It only provides relief for people that are already here. That's a key point. But as I mentioned earlier, the critique of TPS is that people think that once we've given it to a country, others may follow to join and hope that when the TPS designation is renewed, that eligibility date moves up a little, which sometimes happens. So that being present is important, and it limits its ability to be something that can be used in a kind of ongoing way. It's delineated by start and stop dates. So it's not like a temporary worker visa or a foreign student visa. It's a different concept as a tool to be able to respond to humanitarian crises a lot of its viability hinges on the temporary nature and i say that in that if it's seen as being a way to leapfrog legal immigration it will lose integrity it will not be seen as being directed at what was it was designed for which is temporary protections so i think when some people talk about modifying it to create a, an ongoing category, they run the risk of something that I find quite concerning, and that is creating a class of people in our country that don't have a pathway to stay here and are always in this tenuous situation and creates a group of people that can be more easily exploited by employers or other types of of situations. There's an indentured nature to it that's not based on an idea of, of equality and equal treatment. I am very cautious in advocating that it be expanded to encompass more people, because I think an unintended consequence of doing that could lead to a population of vulnerable and, and more easily exploited individuals who don't have the same rights, benefits, and protections that lawful permanent residents have and that U.S. citizens have.
4: Thank you so much for mentioning those, those limitations and those, those dimensions, Professor, of uh, what I think is inherent to the The title you know temporary protected status and that really is what I think carries a lot of the weight of what what that legislation does and can do in the future as well and maybe what the dimensions of of those changes may be for the future. Uh, We we would love to ask you uh, to to round out this interview, if you have any calls to action that you would like to share uh, with our listeners or any information that we have not yet had the chance to cover today that you would like to mention.
0: My call to action is for your generation so that you can bring fresh ideas, innovative uh, ways to be agents of change, to move the discussion forward, to be a positive force on these things. So I I don't like to burden you with that responsibility, uh, but I also wanna empower you so that it's not just talking about it. So my call to action is, is the transfer of knowledge of the political processes so that you can move forward. I'm gonna pass the torch.
4: Now, we would like to welcome Dr. Cecilia Menjivar, the Dorothy L. Meyer Chair in Social Equities and Professor of Sociology at UCLA. Her research falls in two areas, on immigration from Central America to the United States and on violence in Latin America. She has researched the effects of immigration laws and enforcement practices on immigrants and their families and communities. Her most recent publication is The Handbook of Migration Crisis, published by Oxford in 2019. She has received several recognitions, including a Guggenheim Fellowship and a Carnegie Fellowship, and in 2020, was elected as president of the American Sociological Association. Hello, Dr. Menjibar, and welcome to La Biblioteca.
1: Thank you so much for having me here.
3: The pleasure is ours, Dr. Menhivar. For decades, millions of Central Americans have journeyed from their home for thousands of miles to arrive at the southern border. Dr. Menhivar, could you please comment on why Salvadorans, Hondurans, and other Central Americans have left their countries? Why has there been waves of Central American immigration into the U.S. that stretches back since the 80s? And what is the current situation of these countries now?
1: Salvadorian and Central American migration to the United States has continued since this migration started en masse in the 1980s. In the 1980s, the conflicts, the civil wars that raged in this region, and militarization of the region gave rise to conditions that many Central Americans left, especially from Guatemala, El Salvador. And to a lesser degree, Honduras at that time, because Honduras didn't have a civil war, but it was the basis for fighting the civil wars in neighboring countries where the United States created a center of operation, basically a base. And um, so the entire region was enveloped in a political conflict in the 80s. And that's when mostly Guatemalans and Salvadorians left. The the reasons at that time were political violence and persecution and really bloody civil war. This migration has continued because the conditions that the movements during the civil wars were seeking to change really didn't change after the peace accords were signed. So for instance, Inequality continued, um, increasing actually, trends of inequality continued. The conditions for life for the majority of people didn't change much. And then a, a, a layer of violence was added to their lives because during the conflicts, the whole region was very militarized and that remained in the, in the form of what is called now common crime or gang violence, in quotes, but it's very much rooted in the conflicts of the 80s. So since those conditions did, didn't change, migration flows to the United States didn't really change much either. And, and then we've had natural disasters, for instance, in Honduras and in the rest of the region that have amplified and accelerated those, those migrations. So Conditions really that propelled those migrations in the first place really haven't changed and actually have been amplified to the point where, for instance, today there are more more people being killed than during the civil wars in the region. So conditions have really um, gotten worse since the peace accords were signed. And that's why we continue to see migration to the United States from the region.
3: This temporary protection granted to these individuals that is meant to be neither long-term nor permanent, as you mentioned, Dr. Menhivar, is a focal point when considering the limitations or accessibilities that these individuals have while living in the U.S. Dr. Menhivar, what are some benefits TPS recipients are eligible or eligible for?
1: They are eligible basically for a work permit and, and to stay in the country and not be deported if they keep a clean record. So they have to reapply every 18 months. The TPS that they have right now is for 18 months, not the nine months of the first TPS. And so they have to maintain a clean criminal record. And and it gives them a work permit. So they allow to stay in the country for 18 months at a time. They have to apply every 18 months and pay a reapplication fee of $495, $495, I think it is at this moment. And um, so that they do every 18 months. And so it allows them to stay in the country and to have a work permit. There there are several things that they are not allowed to do. For instance, they cannot become permanent residents. TPS is stipulated in law that it, it is not um, going to become a, a path to permanent residence unless Congress, because TPS is in the in US law, unless Congress approves uh, a change and it has to be a, a majority a supermajority in Congress actually to change the law. And um, so it doesn't allow people to, to become lawful permanent residents or to sponsor anyone else for residents. And it also does not allow new applicants into the program. But they can stay in the country for 18 months, they can purchase homes, they can conduct their daily lives, except that they know they have to reapply every 18 months.
4: Thank you so much for providing those details about um, TPS out there, I think we would love to hear a little bit about the communities that are, are TPS holders. So uh, in, in August 2020, uh, you published an article titled uh, Temporary Protection Status for Central American Immigrants with the UCLA Latino Policy and Politics Initiative where you included data and statistics on education, employment, health, and community engagement among TPS communities. Can you maybe talk about some of the key findings of your report and any other key factors that impact or are held by communities of TPS holders?
1: That report is based on a, on a larger report that actually the TPS holders and the TPS Alliance have used in their advocacy work. And that is the policy report from with the UCLA Center is based on on the same survey that I led in 2016. We conducted the survey across the country in the communities with the major concentrations of, of Central Americans and TPS holders across the the country. And the major findings are that overall, TPS holders are integrated in their communities socially, and they are active participants civically. They have high levels of civic participation, civic involvement. Most of them have lived in, their, in the United States for half or more of their lives. For most abuse holders, this is their, their country. They have lived here at least half of their lives. And so they are well integrated socially, culturally, you may say. However, because TPS temporary protected status is a temporary status and it allows people to to work and to have jobs um, and and for employers to, to hire TPS holders, but that temporariness has negative effects on their potential for earnings, for advancement um, economically, because they tend to, in relation to the levels of education and work experience, they could be earning more and um, advancing more, but the temporariness of the status keeps them in the same jobs, in the same positions for a much longer time. Economically, they are able to get jobs, And one may say they're doing well, but they could be doing better, given their level of education and their work experience.
4: We would love to hear a little bit about how the Nielsen V. Ramos case arose and uh, how its uh, process has gone.
1: The case arose from a decision um, by the Trump administration to end TPS for the over three hundred thousand people on TPS. And that was a a very severe decision for the TPS holders who were going to lose the status. The majority of TPS holders who are from El Salvador and Honduras and also Haitians have lived in the United States for half or more of their lives. So this was a major, major blow for, for them and their families. As a result of this decision by the Trump administration and the the then Secretary of State, Nielsen, to not designate, to stop designating these countries for TPS, TPS holders started to organize and to fight in the courts and outside the courts. And the, the case was filed. This is a case filed to stop the undesignation of countries um, designated for TPS, so to continue TPS for these for these countries, it received quite a bit of attention because it was filed by several major national organizations um, of immigrant rights. And it associated with that was the the birth of the National TPS Alliance that has been growing and has moved and has mobilized
4: people around the country. Thank you so much for sharing that about TPS. As we're about to hear with our conversation with Krista Ramos, the courts ultimately decided not to side with the Ramos family and her fellows in that case, but they have appealed and that they are waiting on the results of that appeal. We are curious to know what your thoughts are on what that final announcement could mean for TPS holders and about the impact of the approval or rejection that that repeal could have.
1: I I cannot overstate the depth and breadth of the impact because it's not just on the TPS holders themselves, it's also on their families and communities and even employers who rely so much on TPS holders for in in the sectors where TPS holders work. So the effects are broad and wide. And of course, no one knows what the courts will decide, but I think the the goal of that, of that case is to not end TPS. And the goal of the TPS Alliance work that they're doing right now is to not just not end TPS, but to consider TPS holders for lawful permanent residence, and which is very much aligned with the research I've done. TPS is great and it should be kept because it's very helpful, so very much aligned with the court case. But at the same time, in my data, I see that TPS holders are held back by the temporariness of their status. If they had a more permanent status, they could advance more. So that goes in line with the the work of the TPS Alliance to fight for a more permanent um, dispensation.
4: Of course, we you know, are waiting for the decisions of that appeal and, and to see what the courts ultimately decide. But we would love to hear about what you think the future of TPS might be um, and what a future legislation might look like for um, Central American migrants.
1: Temporary protected status is part of immigration law. So that doesn't go away. That stays unless a supermajority of Congress decides to get rid of it. What, what changes is the designated countries. There have been many countries that have been designated and uh, that designation has stopped for those countries. So it's the countries that are designated that uh, that change. For Central Americans, for Hondurans and in Salvadorians, that's what I mean by Central Americans on TPS because Guatemalans have never been recognized for TPS dispensation. So for Hondurans and Salvadorians, the, the fight and the the mobilization that is going on right now to move them to a more permanent status I think that that would be a solution for that because they've lived here all their lives they have done they have set roots they have families they have they're integrated in their communities so that's the natural thing to do to move them to to a more permanent dispensation, but these two things are, are different. There will be other countries designated for TPS. Venezuela, for instance, was just designated for TPS. Um, there will be other countries designated for TPS and that changes. For Honduras and Central I should specify, because they have been on TPS for so long, the natural thing to do would be to um, grant them permanent status.
3: Finally, we would like to welcome Krista Ramos, a U.S.-born 17-year-old activist who is the lead plaintiff in the lawsuit, Ramos v. Nelson. Her mother is a TPS recipient from El Salvador since 2001. In 2018, when TPS was terminated, Krista became an advocate to speak out about her family's situation. She continues fighting to keep over 400,000 TPS families together. That are in the same situation as her. Hi, Krista. Welcome to the Biblioteca. Hi, thank you for having me. Who is Krista Ramos? Could you tell us more about your upbringing, your family ties to El Salvador, and a bit about your life in the US as a normal
2: high school student? Yeah, so um, as you mentioned, my name is Krista Ramos. Um, I'm 17 years old and I'm from San Francisco, California. Um, I've lived in the Bay Area my entire life, Um, but my parents are both from El Salvador. And even though I've never actually visited El Salvador, I have grown up with the culture. And even though when I speak Spanish, I don't really have that Salvadorian accent like my parents do, being Salvadorian is a big part of me. I am a high school student, as you mentioned, I'm a junior. my education is one of my biggest focuses along with my activism and i have been working
4: hard uh,
2: with my grades knowing that college is right around the corner so i'm happy to
4: and excited to apply soon we wanted to ask if you have ever seen the murals at balmy alley in san francisco i have many
2: times actually i always walk in those streets with my family and they've always popped out of me um seeing those murals is, is really inspiring, not just because of the bright colors and the painting techniques, but also the stories that those murals tell. I remember seeing one of the murals that had um like a picture of Archbishop the from El Salvador, Monsignor Romero, and uh, my family lived in El Salvador during the war in the 80s, and I've grown up listening to, to stories about his significance to the Salvadorian people, and I think it's It's nice to see his image here in this country.
4: Thank you for sharing that, Krista. Um, Our next question is going to pivot a little bit to your um, personal experiences with some of the activism that you have done. Can you tell us about your role as a lead plaintiff in the class action lawsuit of Ramos v. Nielsen? How did it begin and how do you see it ending?
2: yeah, so the lawsuit was placed um, back in 2018 a few weeks after TPS was terminated. The lawsuit includes nine TPS recipients from El Salvador, Haiti, Sudan, Ottawa, um and five u s. citizen children, including me. And, as you mentioned, I am the lead plaintiff in the case. Uh, my mom is also part of the lawsuit. She's the, the TPS recipient in my family, um, and my role is to stand up for my family and to speak out on behalf of over 250,000 U.S. citizen children who are in the situation. My brother and I have been separated from our families. I decided to be part of this lawsuit, not just to fight for my family, but also over 300,000 families. Since 2018, we've been fighting in the courts. The last hearing we had was back in August 2019, and we received a response a year later in September 2020. And it was a negative response. The court overturned the injunction injunction, um, protecting TPS recipients um, from being deported. But we appealed the decision, and we've been waiting for a response since then. I'm not sure how this will end, but we know that this uh, this lawsuit is only granting TPS recipients extensions to keep living in this country, but it can't provide a pathway to residency. That's why I got involved with organizations. I'm part of the National TPS Alliance, um, which has committees all around the country fighting for a pathway to permanent residency. So, you know, we're fighting to fill in Congress that would provide a pathway to uh, residency for TPS recipients.
4: You provided this really great overview of the big milestones of your experience with that lawsuit. What is your personal experience with the lawsuit? Can you tell us a little bit about how you felt throughout this process and how that has impacted other aspects of your life?
2: So when TPS was terminated, I was in eighth grade. I mean, at that time, you know, my biggest focus was that I had to go to high school. And that was just like my thing, like, oh, my gosh, I'm about to go into high school. And then my mom told me about the termination of TPS. And at that time, it was it was shocking because I, I didn't really know about her her status. And I had never really heard of TPS. And so that was the moment when I when I really started paying attention to what was what could happen to me. Um, and so I I got involved with the lawsuit because of that before that speaking in front of people like in public terrified me but I didn't even give a second thought to joining the lawsuit and speaking out for my family because I knew that it was some something I had to do and so I've been growing these past few years um, learning how to speak about my situation helping people through this fight I've met a lot of children of elders who are in the situation and it's you know taught me that that i'm not the only one in the situation and it's it's made me uh, more confident you know to speak to give interviews because i know that it's not just my family that i'm fighting for it's thousands of families around the country
4: you bring up this really important point that there are so many people that have been impacted by tps that continue to be impacted from tps What do you want people to take away from the lawsuit or maybe what what do you want people to, you know, maybe learn the most and share most with others when it comes to looking at the experiences that you've had and that your families have had and that these other thousands of families have had?
2: Yeah, so um, my mom has had TPS since 2001 and it's allowed her to work and live in this country. And as I mentioned before, I had never really given much thought about You know, I knew she was like an immigrant, but I never really thought about her immigrant story. This is, you know, has taught me more about the uh, many immigrant stories in this country of many immigrant families, not just like Central Americans uh, families, because there's TPS communities from like Africa and those areas too. And it's just shown me how different stories about immigrants, but we're all we're all united under TPS. I've met so many people from different countries that I. I never had encountered before, Um, but we're all united in this fight, you know, fighting for our families um, to keep them together. Thank you, Krista. Your activism is truly inspirational.
3: I have a question for you for your future prospects. Who will Krista Ramos be? Where do you see yourself in the future?
2: I have so many things that I want to do with my life, and being an activist has helped change my outlook on life. it's opened my eyes about so many problems, not just in our country, but globally. I wanna help fix. What is clear is that I wanna follow a career path that involves social social justice and helping other people. That's the one thing that is clear for me is that I wanna spend my future helping others. Thank you for sharing that, Krisa. Do you have any call to action that you
3: would like to give to the public in regards to TPS?
2: Yeah, um, I would say, there is a lot of TPS families, um, but some are afraid to speak out. I've met a lot of TPS uh, children who's, who are afraid of of speaking, you know, to, in their communities because they don't know what will happen with their parents. If you know a TPS recipient or you know a child who has parents with TPS, to be supportive, you know, my friends, when I told them about my situation, they were really supportive, saying that they would back me up in anything I needed and i think that really helped me and i would also say to keep on getting involved supporting bills or asking congress members to support bills in congress that would give these families pathway to residency for tps recipients and to that's a way to fight for our families there's so many families in the situation there's a lot of tps children like around the country you know we're a lot of us are minors <laughs> and so seeing the support of college students or older people who who can really you know help make a change with not just speaking out but with their votes or asking their congress members to go out and and to help fight families is what is really helpful
4: that was such an informative conversation with scholars Ruth Waysom and Cecilia Menjivar along with young plaintiff Krista Ramos As we heard from our discussion with Krista, the lawsuit is still ongoing, much like TPS keeps changing, as Professor Waysom pointed out. Lupita, what are the ongoing updates to TPS? How is the legislation changing right now?
3: That's correct, Herman. The lawsuit is ongoing. TPS designation for Central American countries, which include El Salvador, Nicaragua, and Honduras, remain in effect due to the ongoing litigation. As of March 2021, approximately 320,000 individuals from 10 different designated countries hold TPS, with Venezuelans, Haitians and Burmans qualifying most recently in, in 2021. On March 8, 2021, Secretary Mayorkas announced TPS designation for Venezuela. And an estimated 323,000 Venezuelans could be eligible for TPS protections. A 2021 report by the Congressional Research Service, titled "A Temporary Protected Status and Deferred Enforced Departure" by Jill H. Wilson, in forms of HR 6 and HR 1603, both. Both bills that have been passed by the House of Representatives in the 117th Congress. Um, these two bills, if passed by the Senate, could provide a pathway to lawful permanent residence or LPR to thousands of TPS recipients. However, a June 2021 Supreme Court ruling, um, Sanchez v. Mallorcas decided that individuals under TPS who came without authorization to the US would be unable to obtain lawful permanent residency, also known as LPR. Um, this ruling disqualifies a large majority of TPS recipients from Central America from gaining a green card and thus a pass to citizenship.
4: Please note that these updates to TPS legislation are current as of June 2021, when this episode was recorded there may have been updates to TPS between the date of recording and the date this podcast season was released. Please refer to the Congressional Research Service and our Library of Congress Research Guide for the most updated information on TPS.
3: Happy Hispanic Heritage Month 2021! Thank you for tuning in to La Biblioteca Season 2. I Lupita.
4: And I'm Herman. Be sure to tune in to the next episode of La Biblioteca. For more information on the Latinx community and civil rights, visit us online at guides.loc.gov latinx-civil-rights.
0: This has been a presentation of the Library of Congress. Visit us at loc.gov.